0: Please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we'll be looking at Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 13 specifically as we're continuing our sermon series through Paul's uh, New Testament letter to the Ephesians. So Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 13. And to, to understand this passage today, we need to remember um, who Paul's original audience was. He's you know, writing to the church and or churches in and around Ephesus. And this means uh, there were some ethnic Jews who had become Christians in Paul's original audience in that church or in those churches, but it was mostly people who had grown up as pagan Gentiles, but now were saved by Christ Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's important to remember that in Paul's world, if a person was not a Jew, then he or she was a Gentile. But another way, there were only two types of people. Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. However, as we make our way through Ephesians 2, we'll eventually see that while it's true there are only two types of people, the division that Paul gives us will be not between Jew and Gentile, but between people who do not trust Christ for their salvation and people who do. People who have been saved by God's grace and people who are still spiritually dead, enslaved, instead condemned before a holy God. But for for us today, in the three verses of our passage, Paul will directly address these Gentile Christians and only indirectly speak to the Jewish Christians. And we see this in Paul's use of the pronoun you. He uses you in, in all three of the verses today. But now next Sunday, we'll see that Paul transitions from you and speaking to only to these you know, uh, Gentile Christians, and he'll begin to use uh, the pronouns our, us, and we, as he begins to speak to all of his audience, both Jews and Gentile Christians. Now, one other thing before we jump into the text is that uh, we, we are 33 verses into Ephesians, but who's counting? Okay, 33 verses in, and today we come to the very first command the very first imperative, the very first exhortation. And in fact, it's the only exhortation in the first three chapters, the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's the only one. We we will not come to another exhortation until we get to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Okay, so think about this. This is the very first command and the only exhortation in all of the first half of Ephesians. And that indicates to us how significant this is. Okay, now, without without cheating and looking at it, do you know what this first command is? What this first exhortation is? It's a call to remember. Paul says, therefore, remember. Therefore, in light of all that I've been saying, all of these indicatives that are true about your identity in Christ, Therefore, remember, the famous preacher, David Martin Louis jones said this, the only way whereby we can ever understand the greatness of this salvation, this salvation that Paul's been talking about these, for these first 33 verses of this letter to the Ephesians, the only way whereby we can ever understand the greatness of this salvation And as we do so, it will lead to joy and rejoicing, to praise and thanksgiving, to an assurance and a confidence in Christ, which nothing can shake. But in order to come to that, we have to realize two things. We have got to see what we were without Christ. Then we have to realize what is now true of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or put another way, Paul says, therefore, remember. Therefore, remember, not because we've forgotten who we were, as if those of us who are now in Christ can ever forget who we once were. It's not because they had forgotten who they once were. Paul, rather, wants to magnify the wonder of God's grace which is at work in their lives. That Paul wants to to draw attention to Christ's mighty work of redemption on their behalf. That that would result in gratitude which would result in praise and adoration in worship, thanksgiving to God for such a wonderful salvation. And my prayer is that God would use this passage to do the same in our lives. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll read Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 13. Therefore, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision And it is absolutely true. It is given to us in love for our good. We're going to look at this passage under three headings. Paul calls his audience then and for us today to remember. To remember your heart matters. Not just going through the outward motions. Not just going through the religious ritual. But remember your heart matters. Remember who you were. And remember who you are. Remember your heart matters, remember who you were, remember who you are now. So first, remember your heart matters. It's going to take a, a few moments for me to develop this, this first heading, but, but I will, so just stay with me. But let's look, let's look at verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And so, as I've alluded to already, verse 11 points to this major division in the first century culture, especially outside the Christian church, this division between the Jews and the non Jews, the Jews and the Gentiles. And this division was highlighted by the practice of circumcision, the practice of removing the flesh of the male foreskin. Now, and apparently, these two groups of people, the Jews and the non Jews, the Jews and the Gentiles, had nicknames for each other. The Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcision, and the Gentiles referred to the Jews as the circumcision. But sadly, the term the uncircumcised or the uncircumcision had been a term of derision for a very long time. You see, God had given his people, the Israelites, the covenant sign of circumcision in Genesis 17 as a sign of their covenant relationship And this covenant sign of circumcision was to to mark them and to distinguish them as God's people, as separate from the world, and as holy to God. In fact, God gave his people the ceremonial law, the dietary laws, and the covenant sign of circumcision so that the watching world would see just how set apart from all of the other peoples of the earth they really were. And then the pagan nations would be attracted, be drawn to how holy and how set apart God's people were. That the other nations would be drawn to God's word and to God's grace for salvation as they looked and saw how God's people did not look and live just like the unbelieving world around them looked and lived. So the holiness, the the set-apartness of God's people which circumcision was a part, was the covenant sign, so the holiness and the set-apartness of God's people was to be a witness to the watching world. That if we understand holiness correctly, holiness is missional in the very best sense of the term. However, sadly, throughout the Old Testament period, and certainly in the first century, the Jews viewed their circumcision as a mark of superiority. And as an excuse for showing contempt towards their Gentile neighbors. And not not a reminder of their need for God's grace. So look again at verse 11. And this time, notice the phrase, in the flesh. It shows up twice. In the flesh. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh, by hands the, the paul tells the now gentile christians to remember back before christ saved them by grace whenever they were gentiles in the flesh but notice that paul also says that the unbelieving jews though they were circumcised but these unbelieving jews who did not trust in christ as their savior they were circumcised merely in the flesh by hands these were, he, so he's talking about Gentiles, you were Gentiles in the flesh. And he's reminding them of, of people who were Jews, merely in the flesh. Or put another way, in Paul's view, circumcision, if it was only in the flesh or made by hands, was in itself of no value because the outward physical circumcision was always meant to point to the inward spiritual circumcision of one's heart by God. And this has always been the case. That this was true for Abraham and his infant son back in Genesis 17, and this was this was this was supposed to be true for the people of God ever since then. See, this is why the first heading is remember your heart matters. Remember your heart matters. This was always the case even as we see early in the Old Testament Early, like in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 to 16, we read, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Listen to what he said. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. But then later, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and that you may live. That outward physical circumcision was always meant to point to the inward spiritual circumcision of one's heart by God. As is often the case, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And listen to how Paul puts this very clearly in the New Testament in Romans chapter 2 verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God." See, mere outward physical circumcision was ultimately of no value if the heart remains uncircumcised by Christ. But remember, the the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And so look again at Ephesians 2 verse 11 and think about what Paul is telling the Ephesians. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands you see that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart outward physical circumcision is not what mattered it's not what saved a person at any point in the history of redemption it's not what saved any person in the old testament that the only way an old testament saint was saved was by faith in the promised savior who was yet to come and that what mattered for the ephesian church was faith in the christ who had come and who was coming again What matters for us today is that we're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. You know, we we had a a baptism, um, an infant baptism in our 830 service this morning, and every time we baptize a covenant child, I make the point that in the New Testament, we see the Old Testament covenant sign of circumcision give way to the new and better covenant sign of baptism. There's a transition that happens. In the Old Testament, the covenant sign of circumcision was for Abraham and his infant son, for, for believing adult men and for their infant sons. But in the New Testament, when the covenant sign of baptism replaces the covenant sign of circumcision, it's now more inclusive. It's now not only for believing adult men, but also for believing adult women. It's now not only for their infant sons, but also for their infant daughters, and so listen to how Paul, in Colossians two eleven and 12, he puts circumcision and baptism right beside each other. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in bat- baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So similar to the covenant sign of circumcision in the Old Testament baptism, the New Testament covenant sign marks us and sets us apart from the world, but please never ever think that the mere outward sign of baptism has ever saved anyone, because it hasn't, that our baptism calls us to trust in Christ. It calls us to remember that we need his blood to cleanse us from our sins. We need his righteousness imputed to us. We need to be made alive together with Christ and raised to newness of life. So please never think that merely getting baptized saves you. Okay, never think that merely standing up here in front of the church and and affirming the five membership vows saves you. Please, Please never think that That going through the motions of coming forward to take communion saves you. That we are only saved by grace through faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. Remember that your heart matters. Second, Paul says, remember who you were. And so look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world okay so at that time back before these gentile christians in and around ephesus were saved by grace through faith in christ back then at that time the gentiles had as paul will list out so many uh, spiritual disadvantages for lack of a better way to put it so many obstacles for them to ever come to faith in Christ. And yet, who is Paul writing to? A church that's largely full of Gentile Christians who God has saved by his grace. And yet, God's grace had overcome all of these disadvantages. And then listen to how Paul lists them out. First, he says, they were separated from Christ. So look at the beginning of verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from christ okay now of course before they were saved by god's grace in christ before they were united to christ by faith they were separated from christ or they were without christ which is what the greek word translated separated literally means without without christ at that time they were without christ which is obvious from all that we've learned so far in ephesians right however i think that paul's point is is deeper than that you see his point is that back then at that time yes they were without christ they were without faith in christ but even more than that these pagan gentiles were without any expectation of any savior they had no hope for any savior they they had no dream of any forgiveness of their sins They had no expectation of ever receiving imputed righteousness or a new heart. They had no concept of salvation at all. I mean, the Ephesians lived in the city where the goddess of fertility known as Diana or Artemis was worshipped. And they believed that if you somehow bought or purchased or curried her favor, then she might help you in some way with a little bit of her power. That she she might bless you in some way. But this was no expectation of the hope of salvation. They were without any expectation of any Savior. They had no hope for any Savior. They had no hope for forgiveness or for atonement. They had no concept of salvation at all. Well, why not? It's the next thing that Paul says. They were strangers to the people and the promise of God. Look again at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. That Israel was God's chosen covenant people, and God had given him, his people, his promise. God had given his people his word. And it was only in God's word, his revelation, where someone could learn about God's promise to send a savior. And notice in verse 12, this phrase, strangers to the covenants of promise. Covenants, plural, promise, singular. Doesn't say to strangers to the covenants and promises, but covenants and promise. And the reason is because Paul's referring to the one promise, the one huge promise that theologians know as the covenant of grace, which God first makes in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 after our first parents, Adam and Eve, sin in the garden. And then God restates this this promise over and over again throughout the the various eras of redemptive history, over and over again throughout the Old Testament, leading up to the coming of the Christ who would fulfill the promise. And so this this promise we first see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve sinned, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, the promise of a coming Messiah, the promise of a coming Savior, is restated then in different ways throughout the Bible, in different ways to Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and and among the, the days of the prophets. And the unfolding mystery of the Old Testament is that all of this is pointing forward to the Savior who was promised to Adam and Eve there in the garden. And this Savior is Jesus. God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. The second Adam, the the, the seed of Abraham, the prophet greater than Moses, the forever king in the line of David, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The Gentiles were at that time without any expectation of any Savior because they were strangers to the people and strangers to the promise of God. And the result was that, as Paul says, they were without hope. And without God in the world. Listen again to all of verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. They were without God and therefore had no hope. How could they have hope when they had no future grace to look forward to and anticipate? And this is how Paul describes what the first century Gentiles were like before God saved them by his grace in Christ Jesus. And this has been true for people in every age in human history. And it remains true for secular people today. You know, I had the privilege of, of hearing uh, Anna Grace's uh, testimony um, as I, I listened to all of the testimonies of all the covenant children here at CEPC before they come and stand before you all to... Um, you know, receive uh, to, to, to make to, to affirm these membership vows, and I'm selfish that way that I insist on getting to hear all of them, and uh, it's wonderful, such an encouragement. And you know, my guess is is that many of you in this sanctuary have a similar testimony to Anna Grace. It's a testimony that goes something like this, and you say this in response to verse 12. And in response to all that I've said, that you say something like this, Richard, I can never remember a day when I did not believe that God was real, and that he made me and loved me and had given me his word and sent his son Jesus to live and die and rise from the grave to save me. That I've always been blessed to be part of of a family that read the Bible to me, that prayed with me and for me. But I've always been blessed to be part of a local church with people even outside of my family who prayed for me and who knew me and who sought to encourage me and I've always been blessed to be part of a healthy church where the, where the pastors were faithful to preach the whole counsel of God's word to you to me and if that's you then praise God for such a blessing you never, ever, ever take it for granted. I hope that every child in this church has that exact same testimony as they grow up. However, I know that some of you in this sanctuary grew up like I did. It was very different, very different than how Anna Grace grew up. Utterly unchurched. Never hearing the Bible read or hearing prayers prayed at home. In many ways, growing up like Paul describes the Ephesians, without any expectation of any Savior. No hope of grace or forgiveness. Because we were strangers to the people of God and the promise of God found in his word. And yet, here's the wonderful good news. Despite all of that, God saved me by his grace. Despite all of that, there are many of you who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. And praise God for this. And this is, this is part of the message here in Ephesians 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. Listen to how Ligon Duncan applies this to us. It's important for all of us to remember that no matter what we have in this life, no matter what affluence we have, no matter what influence we have, no matter what vocation we have, no matter what associations we have, no matter how blessed we are in the sight of the world, If we are apart from Christ, ultimately we have no Messiah. We have no home. We have no assurance. We have no hope. We have no God. And that means that we can have everything this world has to offer and in the end have absolutely nothing that will last. You see, Paul exhorts his Gentile readers who are now Christians to remember who they were. Not not to humiliate them, but to remind them of how richly God has blessed them in Christ. And so I hope you don't miss that. You see, no matter who you are, no matter what your past is, was like, has been like, or what your present is currently like, the same can be true for you. That there's no one in this room who's too far gone. There's no one in this room who is a lost cause. There's no one in this room who is too great of a sinner. There's no one who's too far off that God cannot bring you near by the blood of Christ. And so trust in Christ. He is the savior you need. Paul says, remember, remember your heart matters. He says, remember who you were. And then now, lastly, he says, remember who you are now. And look at verse 13, I just quoted it to you. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's been using relational language to describe the Ephesians, how once they were separated, alienated, strangers, but now he uses more spatial language that once they were far off and now they have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So what a contrast. You were far off, now you've been brought near. And you could even say that in Ephesians 2, Paul is using contrast all the time. If you remember... Right, at the very beginning of this chapter, he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we have been made alive together with Christ. Now he says we were far off, but now we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So brought near are two words which Paul uses to sum up the unbelievably stunning privileges we now possess in Christ by grace. Grace. And so if you're hearing this and you're not yet a Christian and you feel far from God, I hope you see, no matter how far from God you feel, that you can be brought near to God, even you can be brought near to God by the blood of Christ. See, we once were far off, alienated from God, enemies of God because of our sin, because of our rebellion, but now in Christ we have been brought near. Okay, Richard, but but, but what does near mean? How how near is near? It's all the way in. It is all the way in, all the way in. We have been brought all the way into God's household. We've been brought all the way in, adopted into his family. That you, dear Christian, are his child, his daughter, his son. As John 1, 12 tells us, "But but to all who did receive Christ... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, adopted into his family. In our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 34, defines adoption this way adoption is an act of God's free grace. We don't earn it through our performance, we don't earn it by having our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. It's an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number, into the family. And have a right to, not some, but all the privileges of the sons of God. By way of illustration, I'll tell you that one of the hardest things for me about writing a sermon is all of the distractions, all of the interruptions. Uh, phone calls, texts, emails, people knocking on the door, coming in. So that's one of the reasons why I, 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 I study and write almost all of my sermons away from here, um, often at my house, which works pretty well, uh, unless my kids are there, um, especially my, my youngest, uh, especially my youngest, and you know, she, she often needs to talk to me. Um, she needs to talk to someone all the time, and so sometimes it's my turn, and, uh, you know, and, and it's something, and, and, and whenever it's my turn, it's my turn, okay? And nothing will get in the way. No door is gonna keep her out. If she's gotta tell me about that joke, or about that, that, that chapter she just read in that book, or if she just came back from hip-hop class, whatever hip-hop is, and she has to show me a dance move, whatever it is, she's coming in, even through the closed door, and guess what? I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. Now, I may, I may, I may uh, charge her a, a kiss and a hug as payment for the interruption, but, but I'm okay with it. She always has access. Why? Why? Because I'm her daddy and she's my daughter, and I delight for her to be near. I delight for her to be near. Look again at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, all who are children of God, by grace through faith in Christ's atoning work on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, have access to the Father. You have access to your heavenly Father. Never think that your concern or your problem is too small. Never think it's too trivial. You take it to God, you have access to your heavenly Father. Never think you've finally out his grace and, and finally done something so terrible that God will never listen to your prayers ever again and that your access is cut off. Never think. L- listen again to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember, this is not the exhortation. Paul's not saying, you know, bring yourself near. Brought near is the passive verb, which points to how God graciously, mercifully, sovereignly does the work by the blood of Christ. And you see, this is so much more than merely forgiveness, but this is the picture of God the Father, mercifully, graciously, sovereignly, lovingly, embracing you as his daughter and bringing you in embracing you as his son and bringing you in all the way in so your confidence to draw near to god is not based on your own moral performance and if you're not a christian yet then please know that the gospel does not call you okay to be better and then maybe god will love you the gospel doesn't say okay if you'll get serious and turn over a new leaf then just maybe god will forgive you the gospel doesn't say if, if, if you begin to kind of clean your life up and you stop doing bad things, start doing good things, then, then maybe, just maybe, your performance will be good enough. No, rather the call is to trust in Christ and what he has accomplished on your behalf. Trust in his life, his death, his resurrection, his finished work. It's only by the blood of Christ. Now I know that that, that, that phrase, the blood of Christ, that may seem strange to you if you're if you're pretty new to church, if you're unfamiliar with especially your Old Testament, but I want to tell you that that the whole Bible, the whole Bible points to and talks about and makes much of the blood of Christ. See, the entire Old Testament points forward to the coming Savior. The one promised in Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the woman who would redeem God's elect through the shedding of his own blood. The entire Old Testament points forward to Jesus. And one of the major stories in the Old Testament is the Passover in the book of Exodus, whenever God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And the people were instructed to take a male lamb without blemish, sacrifice it, and then paint his blood on their doorposts of their homes. And God would redeem and set free his people from slavery in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lambs. Later, the blood of sacrificial animals were continually offered on the altars in the tabernacle and then in the temple and the blood of all of those animals ultimately pointed forward to the savior and to the redeemer jesus christ who was to come listen how the author of hebrews puts it in hebrews 9 christ entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is why John introduced Jesus to us in John 1 verse 29 as, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus says of himself in, in Matthew 26, verse 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. Whereas Peter put it in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways and inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Whereas the Apostle John says in Revelation 1, verse 5 to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And that's why the apostle Paul keeps telling this, saying this to us over and over again in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, he said, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. In our text today, we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Later, in Ephesians 5, verse 2, he will say, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, the blood of Christ is essential because our sins need atonement. That God is perfect and holy, which means that he cannot, will not, and he must not turn a blind eye to our sin. He cannot, will not, must not simply overlook it, Sweep it under the rug. He can't just say, "You know what? It's not a big deal. Boys will be boys, girls will be girls." That our sin must be dealt with, must be paid for. This is why we need a redeemer who has shed his blood to cleanse us from our sins. You know, do you know that you need a redeemer? See, a Christian is a sinner who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. See, the alternative to having a Redeemer and trusting in Christ as your Redeemer is for you to attempt to redeem yourself, for you to to believe the lie that if you do enough good things, they can eventually outweigh all the bad things you've done, That, that your good things and your selfless things can outweigh all of the selfish, wrong, immoral things, unjust things you ought not to have done. But it doesn't work that way. We our, our good deeds will never, ever, ever be able to cancel out, to pay for, to wash away our bad deeds. And because of what Christ has accomplished, his life, death, and resurrection, they don't have to. We must trust in Christ. L- listen to how the, the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. The cross of Christ is a standing condemnation of every view and philosophy which says that men and women, by their own efforts, can reconcile themselves to God, or that they can atone for their sin. To all such views, the answer of the cross is that no one can do this. The cross is the proclamation of the insufficiency of mankind, and people dislike it because of that, for they believe in themselves and their own power. See, do you know that you need a Redeemer? A Christian is a sinner who has been redeemed, forgiven, washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. That he's the only Savior and Redeemer. And he suffered the death that we deserve in our place on our behalf to make atonement for our sins. He paid the debt he did not owe to redeem us, us who owed a debt we cannot pay. As Paul puts it in our text, verse 13, but now Christ Jesus. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, dear Christian, child of God, Paul wants you to remember this and never, ever forget it. He wants you to always remember and never forget your salvation and all the reasons you have to praise and worship God with a grateful heart. He wants you to always remember and never forget that you've never, ever met a person, nor will you ever meet a person who is a lost cause or is too far gone or is too great of a sinner. He wants you to remember that, that you, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet God made us alive together with Christ, that we were far off, and yet God brought us near by the blood of Christ, that God can do the same for them. So never, ever, ever stop praying for them. Never, ever, ever stop sharing God's word with them, speaking the gospel to them. Never, ever stop inviting them. Never stop begging God to move and work in their hearts. And always remember, never forget the hope you have in Christ. Remember what God has done for you in sending Jesus to take on flesh, to dwell among you, to live, to die, and rise from the grave for you. Put another way, Always remember, never forget who you are and whose you are and the price that was paid for your salvation. You who once were far off have been brought near by the precious blood of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would make it plain you would make it plain to all of us in this sanctuary and that the the clarity and the, the grace and the mercy of your word here in this gospel summary especially in verse 13 would be a great comfort to those of us who need it to be and i pray that you would use it as a severe mercy a sweet, severe mercy to convict those who need to be convicted and challenged. Where I pray. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, write these truths upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.